and welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, an engrossing story about a woman, Florence Chandler Maybrick, whose life was a study in extremes, from exceptional wealth to a prison cell for murdering her husband, a man suspected of being London's notorious Jack the Ripper. Well, there's much more to it than just those extremes, a lot in between. And here to help me tell this incredible story is Ron Shershev, an author from New Milford, Connecticut, who's writing a book about Florence. Florence's life ended in New Milford, and he wants everybody to know the tale behind this extraordinary woman. Florence Chandler Maybrick has been dead for 80 years. And author Ron Shershev should know. He organized the ceremonies in New Milford in Kent, Connecticut, honoring this extraordinary woman on the 80th anniversary of her death, which was October 23, 2021. New Milford and Kent aren't major towns in Connecticut. In fact, some people have never heard of them. That's all the more reason why Ron also reminds us that when Florence died, the New York Times ran the story of her death on page one the first and only time that New Milford and Kent have been on page one of the Times ever. So who was this woman, Florence Chandler Maybrook? What's it about her life that has us still talking about her? Well, it's a combination of a whodunit and a riches-to-rags story all balled up into one. Ron has spent years researching Florence's story. That's because he's on a local commission that deals with historic buildings in New Milford. One day, a number of years ago, one of his colleagues showed him an old Associated Press photo that had been published in the New York Times. The photo showed an inside room in a rundown ramshackle shanty in New Milford. His colleague wondered if Ron knew anything about it. The inscription on the back of the photo led Ron to learn that Florence had died in this shanty. She had been called the Catwoman of Kent because she had so many cats in that shanty, and she had died inside that shanty a poor woman. Yet, as he was to learn, it hadn't always been that way. In fact, at one point in time, she had been heir to a million acres of land in the mid-Atlantic states. Her new Milford shanty, located on the border of Kent, Connecticut, had been situated on a mere one-third of an acre, not a million acres, and while the structure itself had collapsed and been removed by the time Ron learned of it, the underlying land remained uninhabited. It's in a very remote and woodsy section of northern New Milford called Old Stone Road. Her tiny parcel has been taken over by a plant, a plant that she, in fact, grew in her garden, and which has outsurvived her by decades and, in fact, flourished. The hardy plant is called Pacassandra. The whole area that she had, and it wasn't a big plot of land, is carpeted in green. It's very, and you can see it uh, from Google Earth uh, even during the winter. Ron had only just started his research when he went to the site for the first time, but he had learned enough to understand that Florence had apparently gotten a very raw deal in life. When I got there, I found myself just profoundly moved by her story and thinking about how, how pitiful it was that she died, you know, penniless in this, you know, tiny bungalow in the, in the middle of nowhere. And uh, once she had been uh, a cause celeb. So what was his celebrity status? Well, Florence's story begins with her upbringing in Norfolk, Virginia, 
a major cotton trading center in the 1800s. Throughout her life, there would be occasional tinges of controversy and mystique. For instance, Ron says that her first two fathers passed away under somewhat mysterious circumstances, both times with her mom, Carrie, not far away. Carrie was nursing uh, Florence's dad and then, you know, passed away. So <laughs> it also happened the second time. No charges were ever brought, and apparently nobody ever seriously suspected Florence's mom of being a murderer. She did marry a third time to a baron, making her a baroness. Well, the baron divorced her after about a half dozen years of marriage. When Florence Chandler, her maiden name, was 17, she got on a boat to Europe with her mother and brother. The comparable cotton trading center to Norfolk on the other side of the ocean was Liverpool, England. The three of them were going to Liverpool for a vacation. Ron says Florence met a man on the boat named James Maybrick. A very handsome man. He was her senior by, uh, by like 24 years. And they spent virtually the whole trip, uh, you know, on the ship uh, together. So people were, were quite scandalized. At the end of the cruise, Ron says that James and Florence emerged from his stateroom finally and announced that they were engaged and would be married at least as soon as Florence turned 18. James Maybrick was an extremely wealthy cotton merchant and promised to make a good life for Florence. However, other than the difference in age, there was another side to this relationship that Ron says was not immediately known to Florence or her mother. He was, you know, um, uh, a degenerate. So <laughs> he was very fond of, of booze and gambling and uh, loose women. That part of his past was not disclosed. Included in his activities, according to Ron, was a penchant for so-called magic powders, which Ron says he used excessively. He seemed to have liked it uh, to the extent that he built up a huge tolerance for it. Those magic powders were arsenic and strychnine. Ron says in those days, arsenic was a substitute for Viagra. And when you mixed arsenic and strychnine in the right combination, the result was a euphoric combination not unlike cocaine. Of course, too much arsenic and you'll die. It's poisonous. But in ever-increasing doses with the buildup of tolerance, James Maybrick was able to sustain his habit for many years. Well, James Maybrick had four brothers, two of whom figure prominently in this story, Michael and Edwin. Edwin, like James, was in the cotton business. Michael, though, was an accomplished singer and performer who routinely toured England and was quite popular. The other two brothers weren't as involved in the affairs of James Maybrick and didn't interact all that often with their brother. Michael and Edwin did, and they were particularly upset to learn of their brother's hastily arranged marriage to Florence. Actually, Ron says they didn't like her very much at all. First of all, she was American. And just a hundred years after the Revolutionary War, that was a pretty strong negative in England. Plus, they found her flighty and too devoted to praise. Even worse, she would inherit their brother's huge estate, leaving them out in the cold. What could be done? Well, in the fall of 1888, there were five incredibly grisly murders in London. These murders, all stabbings, occurred in the east end of the city, an area known for prostitution. All five victims were ladies of the night, and they had been brutally murdered over a 10-week period. 
The killer literally ripped open the poor women's bodies with his knife, and in three cases, the intestines were removed. This led to speculation that the murderer was a doctor or a surgeon. But to this day, those murders have never been officially solved. During the spree, police and several newspapers received letters said to be from the killer. At the time, they were considered an elaborate hoax. In one letter, the killer referred to himself as Jack the Ripper, and the name stuck. Over the years, there have been countless amateur sleuths who have tried to crack open this case. Most observers believe it was a barber of Polish descent who lived in the East End by the name of Aaron Kuzminski. But that was before Scotland Yard publicly released the documents associated with the case, a release that occurred 100 years after the murders. Now, numerous people have poured over these documents, but none quite so deeply as Bruce Robinson. His findings have been published in an 800-page book called They All Loved Jack. Now, the Jack in this case was not Jack the Ripper. On the contrary, They All Loved Jack was the name of a song, a song written and performed by none other than Michael Maybrick, the brother of James Maybrick, who sang and performed all over England. Well, I haven't read the 800-page book, but Ron Shersha has. He says that Bruce Robinson's conclusion is that Michael Maybrick was Jack the Ripper. The evidence that Bruce Robinson uncovered in the treasure trove of documents released by Scotland Yard does indeed include some very interesting findings. Perhaps most intriguing, according to Ron, is that there was an affidavit buried in the documents that was never before made public. It was from a draft dodger who had been arrested for abandoning his military duties. During his booking by police, he told them an incredible story. He had overheard two people talking outside a bar. He was skulking around uh, London downtown when he happened to overhear this conversation between two men and where they outlined the basically their their plans to to poison their older brother importantly he was able to identify the men because they mentioned the family name during their conversation maybrick the men had been michael and edwin maybrick well ron says it in robinson's book he alleges that michael started to spread a rumor around certain key circles that said that james his older brother might be the guy behind these murders so he started this whispering campaign while he's cutting open women in in london but if bruce robinson is right and michael maybrick is indeed jack the ripper then michael with his brother edwin's help had to come up with a surefire way of making sure that he could implicate his brother james and nobody would find out the truth well the solution according to the book arrange for his brother's poisoning and then blame it on florence this way florence would go to jail for the murder of james her husband and Michael and his other brothers could share in the estate left behind by James. Okay, but why would Michael want to kill five prostitutes in the first place? According to Bruce Robinson's book, it's a rather elaborate motive, and I'll try and summarize it here. The Maybricks were members of the oldest fraternal organization in the world, the Freemasons. Most of the establishment in Upper Crest, England, including Scotland Yard and most of the criminal justice system, was also staffed by Freemasons. Michael didn't think highly of Scotland Yard and allegedly wanted to embarrass them. Being Freemasons, Bruce Robinson argues that one Freemason wouldn't turn on another, especially if one of them had been suspected of being a murderer. 
Well, the letters from that murderer, the one that the murderer supposedly wrote and were dismissed as hoaxes, have a number of references to Freemason culture and symbolism. The letters also had two rather tantalizing tidbits. Number one, they said that Jack the Ripper was tall and handsome, which Michael Maybrook was considered to be. And number two, one claimed that the Ripper was developing a new poison that was undetectable. And this point will come back later in the story. And since they were mailed from all over the country, they could have been sent by Michael as he toured the country as a performer. Some of the murder scenes had clues of sorts that seemed to harken way back to biblical times, including symbols from when Freemasons were supposedly involved in the building of King Solomon's temple. These clues and evidence were, in at least one case, ordered wiped clean by the Scotland Yard chief himself, and that chief himself was a Freemason. Above all, Michael is said to have wanted to create an elaborate scenario that would stump Scotland Yard and make them look incompetent, which he felt they were. But back to Florence and her husband James. Their marriage was not very solid. On occasion, he was known to have hit her. And according to Ron, James had an entire second life underway in London. There was a, a woman in London who, with whom he had uh, five kids, uh, two of whom uh, he had uh, after he married uh, Florence. Along the way, Florence herself had a one-night affair with a different cotton trader, something that they both mutually called off reportedly the day after it had occurred. Nevertheless, word got out and her infidelity became known. James' use of those magic powders continued, and in fact it increased. He became ill and bedridden. Florence was nursing him, much like her own mother had nursed her first two fathers, both of whom died under her mother's care. Well, if Bruce Robinson's book is to be believed, Michael and or Edwin started poisoning their brother James, quite possibly with this new undetectable poison referenced in one of the Ripper's letters. The increase in poison was gradual, yet effective. He got increasingly sick. On the day of James's death, Michael and Edwin were at the home. They allegedly locked Florence in the room adjacent to her husband James, and then administered chloroform to her until she passed out. While she was unconscious, locked in a, in a dressing room uh, in the room next door, her husband died. Police were called and Michael told them that they were certain that Florence had poisoned James because she had found out that James was Jack the Ripper. Well, she was so groggy from the chloroform that she gave a rambling statement to police, which did nothing to help her escape suspicion. Bruce Robinson's book alleges that Michael went to great lengths to build a case against Florence and Framer. He stashed dozens of bottles of arsenic around the house in hidden locations. He supposedly fabricated a diary in James's name and placed it under the floorboards of James's house. In the diary, Michael supposedly constructed it so that it looked like James had admitted to the killings, giving graphic details. He had meant for the diary to be found shortly after the death by police, but it wasn't uncovered for many decades after all the principals in the case had passed away. Ron says that the autopsy done on James Maybrick found lots of drugs in his body, but only a trace amount of arsenic. Yet Florence Maybrick had been charged with killing her husband by poisoning him with arsenic. She could not have possibly poisoned her husband with arsenic. 
and that was that was the charge that that was brought against her. But Ron says this was very much a case of don't let the facts get in the way. He says the newspapers called it a circus trial. The jury wasn't even sequestered, and reporters would nightly go through the evidence of the day with the jurors at the local pub, usually over beers, and discuss the relative worth of the testimony. And Ron says the judge in the case was notorious for his views and demeanor. He had a reputation for for being uh, a really hardline judge and not a friend to women. On top of that, the judge was apparently beginning to lose his mental faculties. Both the prosecution and defense attorneys had to routinely correct his recollection of the facts. It took the judge two full days to summarize the case for the jury, and he framed it as a case of morals as opposed to hard facts. For example, he said, Florence had committed adultery, so why wouldn't she have committed murder? Her husband's infidelities, incidentally, were never raised in court. As Bruce Robinson notes in his book, Florence Maybrick's defense attorney was a Freemason. Well, it took the jury less than an hour to find her guilty, and the judge sentenced Florence, then in her mid-twenties, to death by hanging. She can hear them building the gallows outside her cell. If you can imagine what that was like. Within a month, the judge was committed to an insane asylum, and he died shortly thereafter. Regardless of what Florence was thinking in her cell, many in the public were outraged by this trial and its outcome. More than half a million signatures flooded into London from throughout England seeking clemency for Florence. And on this side of the Atlantic, the wives of every U.S. cabinet member signed a letter to the Queen of England pleading for Florence's life to be spared. Well, under such pressure, the Queen finally relented and allowed the sentence to be commuted from death to life in prison. In those days, a life sentence for a female was 20 years. Florence was released after about 15 years in jail, taking into account good behavior. Ron says she sailed back to the United States, drawing the largest crowd ever assembled at the docks in New York City to greet anyone who was not a dignitary. Florence was released with the understanding that she wouldn't write about her situation or speak about it. Well, she didn't exactly stick to that. She wrote a book and began a speaking tour around the U.S. It was highly successful and raised a lot of money for her for about six years. But after that, interest in her story started to fade. Everybody had heard it, and it was no longer drawing in substantial crowds. But what about those one million acres of land she was entitled to as an heiress? Well, it turns out that during her time in prison, not only did her brother die, but the acreage lay idle, and no taxes were paid on it. So coal barons took much of it, and squatters invaded much of the rest of it. The legal costs for her to win back the land would have been daunting. She didn't have the funds to fight it. Instead, she was now downtrodden on her luck and becoming destitute. She turned to one of the people who had been her supporter when she first came back to the U.S., a playwright she met who lived in Brookfield, Connecticut. Her name was Cora Griffin. She asked Cora for help. She needed a job, any job, anything to earn some money. And as she told Cora, after touring the country and giving all the lectures as Florence Maybrook, she was now going to become more anonymous and use her maiden name, becoming once again Florence Chandler. Well, Ron says that Cora set up Florence with a woman who ran a chicken farm in the Gaylordsville section of New Milford. That was the cover story, that she was coming to work 
for Henrietta Banwell. In short order, Miss Banwell realized that uh, Florence was completely inept. Florence stayed on the farm doing odd chores for a short while, but then she took some of the $2,000 she had brought with her to Gaylordsville and began renting rooms in people's houses. Finally, she bought that one-third of an acre on Old Stone Road and had this very primitive three-room structure erected on that land. Florence would venture down the road each day to the Gaylordsville General Store to get her newspaper and some food and milk. A benefactor had given her a lifetime subscription to the New York Times. The milk? That was for her many cats. She managed to survive financially for a while because key supporters sent checks to Cora Griffin in Brookfield, who would deposit the money in her account and then write a check to Florence Chandler. This way, nobody would know where Florence Maybrick, now Florence Chandler, was except for Cora. Well, almost nobody else. One day, Florence gave one of her very fashionable black lace dresses to a neighbor as a gift. When her neighbor opened the box, a slip of paper fell out. On the paper, it said, Florence Maybrick. It was a receipt from either a dry cleaner or a hotel luggage department. Well, the neighbors tracked down her true identity by turning to their niece, who happened to work at the New York Public Library. The librarian informed her aunt and uncle that Florence had been convicted of poisoning her husband and then had gone on to her famous cross-country speaking tour. The neighbors realized that whatever had happened in England, at this point in her life, Florence was harmless, and they didn't want to let anything else upset her life. So then, from this point, there are a handful of people uh, who know her identity and uh, agree to keep it secret. Very near her small piece of land, plans were announced to build an exclusive boys' boarding school, the South Kent School, an Episcopal-based operation. Florence became close friends with the first house mother at the school. That house mother gave her odds and ends jobs to do around the office and paid her five bucks a week for her efforts. The boys got to know Florence and loved her. They often brought her food and firewood and did some chores for her. Well, as time marched on and Florence reached her mid-70s, Ron says that she also became more eccentric and reclusive. She stopped uh, taking visitors into her house. She, she wouldn't even let the, the students in. Uh, they would come to the house with supplies and he, she would open up, uh, you know, the, uh, the door crack and, you know, and, and take in, in the food. And the number of her cats continued to grow, reaching estimates of 70 cats at one point. Well, her good friend, the school house mother, then died. Florence visited the headmaster of the school and asked a favor. When she herself passed, could she be buried next to her good friend in the small South Kent School Cemetery located on the school grounds? The headmaster said, absolutely. In 1941, Ron says a utility worker was working on Old Stone Road near her house. A telephone lineman found uh, Florence uh, prostrate in her yard, and apparently she had had a stroke. The school nurse arranged for Florence to receive medicine and food. Regular deliveries of milk and other items were made. An official with the school and his daughter Doris would make occasional stops to check in and make sure all was well. Well, Ron has spoken to that daughter, Doris, who herself now is an older woman. She told Ron that she and her father had a routine. They would leave fresh milk on Florence's windowsill. 
The next day, they'd pick up the empties and replace them with fresh, full bottles of milk. The way that they understood that she uh, was dead was that the milk bottles that had been left outside on the windowsill were still there. And as we said up front, Ron always points to the fact that Florence was so special, the New York Times headlined her passing the very next day. On the front page, amid all of the headlines uh, uh, about the advent of, uh, of World War II, her obit was two columns wide at the top of page one. When Florence was laid to rest, the service occurred at the South Kent School. Florence was buried next to her good friend, the house mother in the school cemetery. Covering the funeral for the New York Times was, it turns out, the very same reporter who covered her trial in London. Well, as he left the funeral, he turned to the headmaster of the South Kent School and said, you know, Florence was once considered the prettiest woman in all of Liverpool. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank my guest for this episode, New Milford author Ron Shersha, who's compiling a book on the final 25 years of Florence Chandler Maybrick's life in the Gaylordsville section of New Milford. Please follow me at my main podcast website so you can automatically be notified when a new episode's available. AmazingTalesCT.Podbean.com and also in between episodes, please check out my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT. In fact, you can see a picture of Florence on that page, courtesy of Ron. Plus, I'd love to hear from you, and you can always send me an idea of a story you'd like me to look into. If you liked what you heard today, spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC.